Well, good morning. My name is Cal. I'm the pastor here. We're glad to have you with us. I want to spend a welcome out to those who are watching us online. Uh, as I am aware, it's uh, maybe a few more than normal. We've got some people who are, uh, who are quarantined and, and, and at home for various reasons. So I want to welcome you as well. If there's any way we can serve you, please leave us a, uh, leave us a note in the comment section, and uh, we'll be happy to, to get back with you. Um, I do have a couple of follow-up to the announcements um, the Faith Life video that I showed, those are some of the things that are available through Faith Life. One of those was Bible study. Um, Logos Bible software is the Bible software I use when I prepare my sermons. Um, I have an extensive library that I've paid for over the years that's pretty, uh, pretty big. However, everybody, just by being a part, having a Faith Life account through our church, has access to kind of a like a basic version of Bible study software to help you study uh, the scripture and help you go deeper. And, and uh, man, it is really, really beneficial. And it is, it is available. You, just, you can download it through our Faith Life site. If you don't have a Faith Life account yet, you need to open a Faith Life account. And uh, what we can do is if you give me your email, I will send you an email and it'll have an invite. And then you just sign up through that get your Faith Life account, you'll be good to go, and you'll have access to all those features, as well as our, that's where we're doing most of our church communication to one another. Uh, through there as well, you can set your notifications. There's an app for your smartphone, um, and I've posted both on our Facebook as well as in our Faith Life, uh, on our Faith Life page, uh, a link to a few videos that will show you more about what you can do uh, with that as well. Now, if you think that Logos Bible software sounds great, um, uh, this week, actually on the 7th, I am going to be hosting a webinar for, uh, for Faith Life, uh, for Logos Bible Software, just on how to do a Bible study through it. It's free. Anybody can come. Uh, and then at the end of it, they're going to give a discount. This is just something I'm doing in kind of individually on my own. They sent me an email that said, hey, we picked some pastors. Would you want to do this? Um, but they are going to give a discount code at the end of it if you want to like upgrade to a, a different library or a higher library or whatever. Um, but I thought, wow, that's really great because even though I'm doing that separately, like you guys have access to the software, so it might be a good opportunity for anybody who wants to learn how to do it. Um, the webinar's in the daytime, though, but it'll be recorded, and I'll get a link so those of you who are at work and stuff can watch it in the evening. So. Uh, anyway, and, and you can find all that if you just go look me up on Facebook. It's on my, and I think I put it on the church, uh, church page as well, uh, or on our Faith Life site. The last thing I want to say is, look, AJ, I don't know if there's going to be games at this uh, wedding uh, shower, but I will tell you this. There will be at least one thing that must happen, and you can tell Andrew I said this. Andrew must wear one of those stupid paper plate hats with the bows on it. You know what I'm talking about? Do you all know what I'm talking about? At these showers, they make a... Don't tell me this is just something they made up just for me uh, 21 years ago. You take all the bows off the presents and they put them on a hat and then they make them, make them wear it and then they take a stupid picture and then you can like, make fun of that person for years with that picture. Not that I know anything about that, but that must happen right there. So we need a paper plate and we need some bows. And if, if, there's, if people aren't bringing gifts with bows, bring extra bows going to happen. Anyway. I, hope, I hope with everything in me that he watches this. Anyway, I'm just kidding. He, he's, 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 a, he's a big, tough guy. He can take the joke. Hey, uh, go ahead and turn your Bible to Micah chapter 2. That's enough of uh, my stupid stand-up routine. This morning, we're going to continue looking at the book of Micah as we started last week. 
Micah, if you'll recall, is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And I said, you know, probably you haven't spent a lot of time hanging out in the minor prophets. It's not like uh, a lot of people's favorite place to go. A lot of times if they're going Old Testament prophet, they'll go to one of the, the more major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. But Micah, if you'll remember, was a bit of an outsider. He was a, he was a, a country boy, as it were, okay, from this, this town of Morasheth. And he, you know, he prophesied during the same time as Isaiah. Now, I said his book is shorter, but that doesn't mean it was less important or that the message wasn't as important. He actually prophesied for 30 years. He had like a three-decade ministry there. And, and whereas Isaiah primarily spoke to the monarchy, Micah primarily prophesied towards the common people of the land. The people at that time, they'd been led, if you'll recall, by a mixture of godly kings and then also some kings who led the people into idolatry and wickedness. And years before, God had made a covenant with the people to take care of them, and they, for their part of the covenant, would obey and would serve God alone. But the people broke their part of the covenant. They they rebelled against the Lord. Now, rebellion comes pretty naturally for us humans, doesn't it? The scripture says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, we find that because of sin nature in us, humanity, humanity, humidity, humidity, humanity, it's going great this morning. Humanity will, will rebel against the truth because of our sin nature. And I've described that before of, of our sin nature. It's like if you don't believe that people are inherently depraved, inherently sinful, then take two toddlers, put them in a room, toss one toy in and close the door and see what happens. Somebody's coming out crying, right? Or bleeding, maybe. I don't know. That got, that got extreme quick. But rebellion, we, we all know what it's like to have that kind of rebellious feeling. You remember when you were a kid and your parents said, don't do this? You're like, I'm going to do this. Or you know, girls, there was that bad guy that your mom and dad didn't want you to go out on a date with, and you said, oh, I'm going to go see him anyway. You know, when I enter guys, you know, you were like, your mom or your dad was like, you got to wear your seatbelt. You got to wear your seatbelt, whatever it is. I'll tell you what rebellion looks like, give you a little image. Um, it's like when I went to Hannibal LaGrange University, which is where my son Javen attends as well. Bethany and I went to college there, and out, kind of outside of town, there's a place called Lover's Leap. And it's at the top of this winding road. It's a well-known area. It's this exposed limestone cliff that overlooks the Mississippi River. I've got a picture of it I'm going to show you here. It looks like that. That's Lover's Leap in Hannibal. Now, what you can't see, what you can't see there is there's a fence that keeps you from going out there. And there's a sign that talks about how that is, that's soft rock or that rock could crumble or whatever, Right? And Lover's Leap, if you look directly back to the left, you can see downtown Hannibal. That's the Mississippi River. Uh, You can see downtown Hannibal. Lover's Leap in uh, Tom Sawyer. Uh, The book Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain, uh, named it as Cardiff Hill. And that's what he used as as, as the the idea for Cardiff Hill was, was Lover's Leap in Hannibal. Now, the story goes... There's various renditions of the story at various places up and down the river on various places called Lover's Leap, but the story is something like this. There were these two people who were in love. I think they were from separate Indian tribes, and um, it was a guy from one tribe and a gal from another tribe, and they were not allowed to be together, so they went up here and jumped off. 
you know, real Romeo and Juliet story, right? So anyway, what you can't see is there's a fence, though, that keeps you from going out there. And if I remember correctly, there's this sign that warns you about the soft rock. Now, if you're a certain kind of person, there's something in you that makes you want to climb out there anyway. Maybe not if you're the type of person who's really scared of heights, okay? But there's something in you that makes you want to rebel against that sign and say, nah, I'll be fine. I want the picture. And if you search on the internet for Lover's Leap Hannibal, Missouri, guess what you can find? Pictures of people sitting out there. Ultimately, you're not supposed to go out there, but there's something in us that says, nah, I'm good, and we start climbing. Now, if you don't do that, primarily you don't want to do it because you don't want to die because you know it's soft, right? Sort of like when you see a speed limit sign and you figure you can go against it if there's no cops nearby, right? We're rebels. Some people have even made a career out of rebellion. You guys remember an actor named James Dean? I mean, I don't remember him. That's a little before my time, but he was in this movie called Rebel Without a Cause. But when we rebel against God, we set ourselves up for destruction, See, God had laid out the way the covenant was to be kept by his people in the Ten Commandments. And last week we talked about the first four were dealing with loyalty to God, and then the final six dealing with our obedience and our interactions with one another. And Jesus then confirmed it by uh, telling someone when he was asked what the greatest command was, that it was to basically love God with everything in you and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And last week we talked about how A lot of idolatry had bled into the people, into the culture, into the way of life in the two kingdoms, and that they traded their love of God for the love of idols. So this week, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about how their rebellion was was not just in trading their love of God for idols, but also they were trading their love of one another for love of self. Let's turn to the book of Micah, chapter 2. We're going to read the whole, the whole thing, which is verses 1 through 13 uh, this morning. So let's uh, see what the Lord would have to say to us. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly, and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore... You will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, 
saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for his people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. God, thank you so much for your word. And God, we read it, and God, we don't want it to be something that we just read and then go about our day. God, we want it to be something that we internalize, that uh, we, we write on our hearts that we would not sin against you. God, that you would help us understand what you mean in your word and help us know how to apply it to our lives and help us to put that into practice as we go out in our day in, day out, everyday lives during the week. God, I pray my words would be clear. I pray that there's anything in this that's just of me, my selfishness, my personality. God, just clear it out and speak clearly to your people. May I decrease and you increase, Jesus. This, this is about you. Don't let me make it about me ever, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So what do we see here? Well, we can see something, and it's something that we saw last week as well. The people were corrupt. The people were corrupt. They were in idolatry. They were worshiping false gods, and they were oppressing one another. So that what, let's look at the corruption of the people. First, the people had become greedy oppressors. See that in verses 1 through 5. Now, in verse 1, there's a word at the very beginning, woe. Not, not woe like, woe, doggy. Okay, woe, horsey, whatever. I can't believe I just said that. That's not in the notes. <laughs> woe. The word used here for woe, though, W-O-E, the, the Hebrew word there that that's translated from is, is hoy, H-O-Y. And what that is, is it's a divine threat. This is intense. This is uh, God's threatening. Yeah, hey, destruction is coming. And then we see that who? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Working, what is it? Working evil on their beds. Well, these people are described like they're... (laughs) Like they're laying in their beds at night just thinking up evil deeds to do. They're just consumed. It's almost like they can't sleep because they're consumed with wickedness. So at night, instead of sleeping, they're working on ways to sin. As I was thinking about this, I thought about, wow, how many things that are, uh, that are ways in which we mistreat people and ways that we misuse and abuse the things God has given us and the ways uh, that we go against God, how many of those things actually do happen at night? <laughs> kind of a lot, right? <laughs> I mean, it happened during the day too, but I was just like, wow, that's, that's amazing. But, but it's almost like they're just laying there and they're so consumed with their wickedness, with thinking up ways that they can oppress people, that they can do work these wicked schemes, coming up with these. And then we look at verse 3, when we look at verse 3, the, the word that's translated power there um, can be used of either God or people. But here, when used in reference of people, it denotes strength or might. 
So understand this. The powerful, wealthy people had the ability, not only were they laying and planning their wicked schemes, but they had the power, the ability, the might to carry out their wicked schemes and profit from them in oppressing the people. They could oppress the less prosperous or even one another, tricking one another and taking advantage. Because of their plotting and working out of their schemes, they would oppress people and they would take away their inheritance. And if we look back at verse 2, we can see what leads to their wicked activity. This wicked activity comes from, in verse 2, covetousness. They covet fields and seize them. They, they, They want the field, and so they grab it. They want it, and so they get it. They work out a way to oppress, to trick, to swindle. They work out their scheme, and then they enact their scheme. First, they covet what they do not have. So they act on that covetousness. They're, they're not content with what they have, so they plot and they scheme and they take away with overpowering might. But God says that he is devising disaster upon these people. And when it says they cannot remove it from their necks, the image is like a yoke put on a team of oxen. They can't do any, the oxen can't do anything about that yoke that is lowered on them. They just have to go wherever they're driven. They cannot remove this disaster from themselves because of their wicked scheming, because at their very heart they are covetousness and rebellious of the Lord. A yoke, a, 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 a destruction is coming that they cannot take off of themselves. The people had become greedy oppressors. Now, in the next few verses, verses 6 through 11, we find that the people had also, in, in addition to being greedy oppressors, they had rejected the word of God. They'd rejected the word of God. There were false prophets abounding. And the false prophets claimed that Yahweh would not send judgment on Israel. Huh. Nah, we, we got plenty of time. You're good. They claimed that Yahweh would not send judgment on Israel. They actually encouraged Micah here. They actually encouraged him not to prophesy such harsh words. <laughs> hey, that's a little rough. Why don't you just tell us some good, something good? That's kind of hard. Why don't you have like a hopeful message about how I can live my best life now? But Micah couldn't do that. He had to give them the word of the Lord. It, it reminded me. Now, Micah wasn't the only one who ever faced, as far as the prophets, he wasn't the only one who faced this type of antagonism. Actually, Isaiah, his contemporary, actually faced the same sort of complaint. In Isaiah 30, verse 10, it says, uh, Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. I was reminded of, uh, I was back in Iowa, Winterset, Iowa, where I'm from, birthplace at John Wayne, if you don't know, and I was in my favorite coffee shop in town there, it's called The Cellar, it's in a basement, and uh, I was in there, and I was in there, it must have been a Wednesday, because all of the retired teachers uh, came in for their, and they get a big table, there's like 10 or 12 of them, and it's very, it gets very loud in there, hard to get anything done. And they get in there. Well, I was there on this particular day, and my old junior high principal came in, okay? And um, we were talking, you know, hey, oh, it's good to see you. How you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And 
talked about being a pastor and everything, and she said, oh, well, you're not one of those fire and brimstone type pastors. You just tell people the good stuff, right? I was like, uh, I'm both. I'm both. See, you can't avoid talking about judgment. You can't avoid talking about sin. You can't avoid talking about hell if you want to preach the whole counsel of God. You can't just tell people what they want to hear. You can't just tell them positive things. It's why, like, most of the, 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 a lot of the preachers that get really popular and have best-selling books, some of them are fine, okay? So I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but a lot of them, they just want to say these positive things and they leave out the other side. They just want to say, oh, you can have this awesome awesomeness in your life. Awesome awesomeness, you like that? Uh, maybe that's my title of my book. I'm just kidding, no. Uh, you can have this awesome awesomeness, but they don't get to the whole idea of why you needed the Savior in the first place because sin and you were in line of the wrath of God before Jesus. But I was polite to her, just so you know. And just said, I'm both. People have to know that they need a Savior. So these folks, they they were questioning whether God had grown impatient. They weren't realizing as we often don't realize, just how patient God had been with them already and how patient he was being with them at that very moment. God could have rightly and justly judged them and he would have been completely right and good and holy in judging them right then because they broke the covenant. They had spit in his face over and over and over again. They spiritually had sold themselves off to false gods. I said last week they were spiritually prostituting themselves off to false gods. And God was yet incredibly patient with them. And he is incredibly patient with us as well. And I'm going to prove it to you by going to 2 Peter verse excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. It says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Pay attention to verse 9 here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The Lord is patient. Not, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But we know that some, we have this guarantee in Scripture, some will not come to repentance. They will continually reject the Lord and face judgment and wrath. Okay? Someone, at the end of it all, somebody ends up in the lake of fire. That's just the truth. It's not fun. I don't like it, but it's the truth. Now, go back to to Micah chapter 2. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. The words of the prophets of God are of benefit to the righteous. The words of God, the words of the prophets of God 
are of benefit to the righteous, those who have right standing before God. The people should have remembered the words of the true prophets of God. The, the words that they had, that they had had for years. This wasn't the first time they'd had a prophet talk to them. They had had the words of God for years. And they knew the history and the story of their nation of Israel that had been led out of the wilderness by God. That had been led to the promised land. That had established the kingdom of David and Solomon that eventually, after that, divided. The words of God are life-giving, and yet the people's actions lead them to death. And false prophets question whether these deeds are the deeds of God. Well, is that really God? Now, that sounds an awful lot. That sounds an awful lot like something I read earlier in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Did, did God say you'd die? Did God really say you'd die? So, the deception of the serpents alive and well. But his end is defeat. In verse 8, we find that the nation had become violent and oppressive towards one another. So we've got these people who should be loving God and loving one another. They should be keeping the covenant with God. Instead, they've turned, instead of worshiping God, have started worshiping idols. And now, instead of loving and serving one another as fellow children of God, a fellow, or a fellow uh, um, of the people of God, they've become violent and oppressive towards one another. Understand this. Instead of treating each other as fellow countrymen, as, as brothers, sisters, family, Tribesmen, instead of that, they were treating each other as foreign enemies. They had no care for treating each other with regard for God or love for one another. They were abusive to women. They took the inheritance of children. And in that culture, women and children left by themselves with no inheritance would have no means of survival. You talk about injustice, right? Women would likely have to consider prostitution because their choices for survival would have been so limited. And the people who were doing this things, think these things to them simply did not care. Friends, sin destroys. Uncleanness destroys. Here it says, with a grievous destruction. I, I read that. It's almost like my awesome awesomeness comment, Right? Uncleanness destroys with a grievous destruction. It's not pretty. And here's the thing. Not only does sin and uncleanness shipwreck your own life, but it negatively and destructively impacts those around you. Uh, Its repercussions have a tsunami effect. I was thinking about this and I was like, Oh yeah, so yeah, you sin, it's almost like you throw the pebble in the water and there's the ripples. No. It's more like a tsunami. There's an earthquake of sin in your life and it destroys some island far away. And it just reaps a path of destruction in its wake. That is what sin is designed to do. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, but he came... To bring life. That's not a direct quote. That's a total paraphrase, by the way. So what are the outcomes 
of all of this greed, this injustice, this rejecting of the word of God, this, uh, this oppressive treatment towards those who we should be united with, towards their countrymen that they were treating like foreign enemies. I'm, I'm glad I don't see Christians at each other's throat. Oh, wait, never mind. That happens all the time. Those who should be loving and unified duking it out on social media instead of sitting down in the context of a local church and talking about their differences. So what are the outcomes of this greed, this jealousy, this injustice, this rejecting of the word of God? Number one, when, when authentic love is lost, duty takes its place. When authentic love is lost, duty takes its place. When we replace love for God with love for a false idol, with love for our reputation, for standing, a lot of times we'll replace that with just doing duty. We'll replace that with going through religious motions, religious actions. Do you remember I told you about there was a king years before, uh, Jeroboam, I believe is who I said, and he had started this, this form of counterfeit worship where he created a couple of golden calves and they were supposed to be worshiping God by worshiping these idols, which is completely sinful and evil and wrong to worship a carved image. Okay, that's graven image. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. And he wasn't worshiping God the way God wanted to be worshipped. Understand, it is completely possible for you and for me to go through the motions, to show up and be doing our duty to God while our hearts are serving a false idol. We may be showing up in the morning. We may pray before our meals. We may show up at church like a good soldier. Our hearts may be worshiping our kids' traveling soccer team or our fishing boat or our job. When authentic love is lost, duty will take its place very easily. Number two, when we turn our backs on obeying God, rejection takes its place. When we turn our backs on God, see, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? In this sense. If you turn your back on obeying God, you're disobeying God, you're actually rejecting, you're rejecting him, you're rejecting his commands. Three, when we stubbornly continue to disobey, the patience of God gives way to discipline. A loving father disciplines those he loves. I'm not talking about punishment, I'm talking about discipline. And there is a difference. There is a difference. When we continually disobey, why are we, why are we surprised when we feel the Lord's hand of discipline? The Bible says no discipline's pleasant while you're going through it. But we know discipline leads to life. It leads to correction. Number four, when we lose sight of love for our neighbor, that love is replaced with self-service. So when we are not loving God with all that is in us, heart, soul, mind, body, when we're not loving God with everything, and, and loving neighbor as ourselves, and we lose sight of, of love for our neighbor, that love is replaced with self-service. 
I know a lot of people who would claim they love God above all, they serve God above all. And their hearts are completely, seem completely closed off to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it should not be that way. We should be known by our love for one another. But what we do is we replace a love for our neighbor with a love of ourself. And so instead of, instead of doing things to love and serve our neighbor, our brother and sister, those in our local church body, or even outsiders, and we stop doing those things, we start doing the things that love and build ourselves. And that's not the way it's supposed to be for those who follow God. And next, when we disobey God, his blessing is replaced with disaster. When we disobey God, his blessing is replaced with disaster. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that everything that you do, that it, everything, what I'm not saying is what Job's friends were mistaken in, okay? Job's friends thought that all this bad stuff was happening to Job because he had sinned against the Lord. And that wasn't, that's not true. Not everything bad that happens to you is because you sinned, okay? Some of the stuff that you're going through and you're like, wow, this feels really bad is actually to help build you and shape you and make you more into who God wants you to be. Sometimes it may be his discipline. But when we disobey God, his blessing is replaced with disaster. Because when we disobey God, we're sinning, and sin brings bondage. We sing that song, no longer slaves to sin, right? No longer slaves. I'm... Because what sin does, what it's built to do, is to get you to be loyal to something else and to begin to worship that thing, and then you are in bondage to that thing. Not all addictions are chemical. Sin brings bondage and sin brings death. The ultimate end game of sin is to destroy your life and your eternity. So if you know Jesus, your eternity is secure. But sin wants to have you. And it will work and worm its way into your life if we do not stay vigilant. And I want to, as we kind of head towards the home plate here, I want to bring this up because I think this is important in verses 12 and 13. Because we've been through a lot of, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of prophesying of destruction coming. But God through Micah tells us that restoration is on the horizon for the people. Restoration is on the horizon. It's coming. Verse 12, following a prophecy of judgment, there's a prophecy of hope. Those God will assemble are the faithful remnant of the people Micah spoke to who had remained faithful and survived the time of judgment on the kingdom of Judah. These are those who have remained faithful, those who are that remnant of people who would make it through this judgment that was coming to the people And when we get to the end of the book, you recognize that, okay, so Assyria was the big threat, and now at the end of the book, Babylon is rising as a threat. But there would be 
hope on the horizon. There would be a remnant of faithful who would survive, who would remain through that judgment. And then eventually, through the people, through the bloodline, would come Messiah, Jesus Christ. In uh, the end of verse 12, where it talks about um, the people being set together in a sheep, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. It, it says this noisy multitude of men. The, the Hebrew expression that's used there, it's translated as that. It's likely this noise, this, when sheep get all, I don't know if anybody here has ever raised sheep. My uncle Jim uh, raised sheep. Um, and when I was a kid, we would go out there. And when sheep are all gathered together, uh, they can make a lot of noise, right? They, they bleat and they baa and they can make a lot of noise. But the expression here, for, when it talks about a noisy multitude of men, that's likely due to shouts of thanksgiving and rejoicing because that hope has been realized. That they've made it through this judgment into the hope and the promise of the Lord. In verse 13, it talks about the Messiah acting as a shepherd for the Israelites. Now, the shepherd motif is a motif we find all throughout Scripture and in, in the Old Testament prophets in particular. And the part that, man, really kind of hit me was the very last line in verse 13. Their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. The picture here is the people of God as the flock gathered together thankful for their restoration, for the hope they have And Messiah, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is there. And he's at the front of the procession leading them. He's the first one through the gate. Leading the people to restoration. Jesus leads his people. He did that by recognizing that we are humans, all sin. Have all, all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he came to earth 100% God, 100% man. And he lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died a death in our place on the cross that we could not die. A perfect sacrifice for all sin for all time. And he died a death that we deserved. Paying that price we, we could not pay. And in doing so, for those who trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he imputes to us his righteousness, his right standing before God. And you remember what I said earlier, that the words of the Lord benefit the righteous. And so then we're benefited by the word of God. Not only did he die as that sacrifice going on ahead of us, but he rose from the grave three days later first. And we too in Christ will rise and be co-heirs of the kingdom. This is incredibly good news. And we're told we need to repent of our sin, turn away from our sin, and believe the good news. Believe that Jesus is who he says he was, that he died in our place on the cross for our sin, that he rose from the grave, that he is king and he is Lord and surrender to him. And we can have life eternal. We can also have a unified, loving life with other believers here on earth. Jesus is the good shepherd. 
And that, for more on that shepherd motif, I would direct you to John uh, chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 11 through 18, where it says this. This is Jesus talking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this field and not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. And you know what that means? Because he lived that perfect life and laid it down willingly as a sacrifice, that you know what? We don't always act like we belong to God, right? Sometimes we sin. We we act in ways that are... And and if we're truly following Christ, generally, right after that, we're like, why did I do that? And we realize it came from a sinful place in our heart. And we're called to repent and change Change the way we think towards our sin. Change the way we act towards our sin and follow God. When I was in college, actually, I'm going to ask the musicians to come on up at this time so they can begin to get situated, but I want to tell you a story as they come. And I'm going to end end with a story here. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to hear the great D. James Kennedy, who is a preacher, pastor. He was the author of Evangelism Explosion years ago. And I was able to hear him preach at a denominational gathering, not for his denomination, but it was still, it was awesome. And he told the following story about Alexander the Great, and it stuck with me. Apparently, it's a quite famous illustration. But he told this story, and so I want to tell it to you. One day, Alexander the Great held court in Nebuchadnezzar's great palace in Babylon. He sat upon the great golden throne, pronouncing sentences for crimes charged to his soldiers. The sergeant-at-arms brought in one soldier after another and read their crimes. No one could deliver them from Alexander's severe judgments. Finally, the sergeant-at-arms brought in a young Macedonian soldier and read aloud his crime, fleeing in the face of the enemy. This cowardice Alexander could not tolerate. But as he looked on this young soldier, Alexander's countenance changed from stern to soft. Smiling, he said to the kid, Son, what is your name? The boy said softly, obviously a little scared. He replied, Alexander. The smile left the king's face. He said, What did you say? The young man snapped to attention. Alexander, sir. The king turned crimson and shouted, what is your name? The boy began to stammer and said, Alexander, sir. The king burst out of his chair, grabbed the young man by the tunic, stared him in the face, then threw him on the ground and said, Soldier, change your conduct or change your name. 
Kennedy writes of this illustration. All of us have a name for our royal lineage. What is that name? Christian. Those who've trusted in Christ. And we need to live our lives in a manner worthy of that name. Dear friend, I encourage you to be strong. Be courageous. Obey the Lord. Allow God to give you courage in Him. Courage to do what God has told us to do. Courage to avoid the things God has told us not to do. Courage to stand up for Christ. Let us not cower under fire, but stand firm in the Lord's name, living up to our calling as Christians. The idea here is your conduct should match the name you claim. And when it doesn't, repent. Seek forgiveness from God and man. Look, people don't need to see us as perfect, okay? Please, that's not an excuse to go out and sin on purpose so people can see you're not perfect, okay? That's all I'm saying. People don't need to see perfect people. They need to see broken people who have found a Savior, who know how to seek forgiveness from one another and forgive one another and move on because they have been forgiven much. Would you stand up and pray with me? God, as we come to this time, God, man, I, I don't know what's going on with people's hearts. God, I know things you have been moving in me, but God, I just pray that you would, uh, you would speak clearly in our hearts through your word, that we would recall the message you've spoken, God, that as we feel you calling us, moving us, God, I pray we would be obedient in that. God, there's some here who may realize they have areas, man, where they've sinned, they need to repent. I just pray you would bring them quickly to repentance, that sweet gift of godly sorrow and repentance. Help us to trust fully in you and you alone, Jesus. God, if there's those here who've never met you, who've never trusted the gospel, maybe this is the first time they've heard about how you died in their place for their sin, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would surrender to you, that they would repent of their sin and trust you, Jesus. Help us be more faithful. And thank you for the gospel. That we don't have to try to please you. You're already pleased. Help us serve you out of a gratitude for what you've done, not out of a need to try and earn some kind of love from you that we already have. Help me understand that better. Help me live that better. Make me more faithful, Jesus. It's in your name I pray.